Hey everyone, and welcome to the Walk-Ons Podcast. This is Andrew Schuster, sitting down to record the second episode of our new show, The End of the Bench. Now, for those of you that didn't get a chance to check out the first episode, The End of the Bench is our new show where I sit down with a guest who may not necessarily be a well-known sports figure like the guys we have on our regular weekly show, but nonetheless brings some great insight and have a unique connection to sports that allows us to talk some more nuance and specific sports storylines and narratives that we don't typically get to touch on when I'm sitting down with Ryan. This week I'm joined by my good friend and noted Aaron Rodgers doppelganger, Billy Klein, where in our first segment we get his thoughts on what's been like to be a diehard Packers fan throughout this three-month-long saga with Aaron Rodgers, and he explains how the one-of-a-kind dynamics of the Packers organization has really allowed the situation to play out the way it has. Then in our second segment, Billy uses his perspective as a Duke fan. That's right, I let a Duke fan on the show, I know. But nonetheless, to discuss all the drastic changes that are happening in college basketball at once and really try to make sense of how this sport is rapidly changing and what it could look like five to ten years down the road. And as always, we uh, have some dudes and duds and a couple soapboxes that I think you guys will enjoy. So, you know, without further ado, let's get into it. This is the End of the Bench, Episode 2, featuring my good friend, Billy Klein. Talking sports as they report back and forth from their home court. They talk the sports if you're not sure. They talk of sports and then talk more about all sports. East, West, South, North. Ryan talks sports. Andrew retorts. And Churchill here as they both sort through all the sports they both support. The Walk-Ons. Hey everyone, and welcome to the second episode of the End of the Bench series. It is Thursday, July 8th, and I'm sitting here with my longtime friend. And oddly enough, it's really specific to the topic we're going to talk about. Aaron Rodgers' doppelganger, the one, the only, Billy Klein. How's it going, Billy? What's going on, man? I appreciate you having me on the podcast. Yeah, no, it's, it's been a long time coming. I've been mentioned, uh, you know, Seamus and Ryan on a regular podcast that we got to get my friend Billy on one because he's the biggest Packer fan ever. And obviously there's a lot to talk about the Packers this offseason. And two, it's really, like I said, it's really kind of odd how much you look a lot like Aaron Rodgers. And that's a, a good lead into our first topic this today. Yeah, man. I mean, I, this offseason has definitely been different as a Packers fan, and I've been trying to uh, not talk about it as much as possible just because I think uh, ESPN and these other media outlets kind of play too much into it. So it'll be interesting to talk about it with you. Uh, obviously, longtime friend, so excited to get into it. Yeah, you say you're not going to talk about it, but we're going to talk about it now. So <laughs> I, I really don't need to explain to the people out there. You all know what's going on with Aaron Rodgers, but it's been the biggest storyline of the NFL offseason is how – he doesn't want to be a Packer, supposedly, or maybe he does, but he's using them as leverage for, you know, more guaranteed money. I don't know. But we can sit here and all day and debate if Rodgers is going to get traded or not, but that's been done a million times this year. So I wanted to do something a little different. Instead, I figured we could take a step back from the story and the, and the talking points and just kind of like look at your experience as a, as a diehard Packers fan and, you know, give us some insight into one, how this unique franchise really is kind of structured, which I think has been a huge part of this saga playing out and to just kind of give us some context into how this situation occurred in the first place because it seemed to come out of nowhere but it really feels like it's kind of been brewing for a couple years um but first off you know let, let's break down the Packers organization a bit since like I said one of the primary factors that has really allowed this scenario to play out the way it has is the fact that the Packers ownership situation is uniquely different from the other 31 teams in the NFL so I'll give you the floor in a second but can you clue us in on just how the Packers are kind of corporately structured, the way their front offices run, and how that setup specifically has allowed this Rodgers situation to play out, for better or worse. 
For sure, man. Yeah, like you said, um, you hinted at the Green Bay being the only franchise in the whole league, not only I think all of sports, American sports at least, that is publicly owned. Um, this franchise has been around for over 100 years, so it's one of the most historied, historic franchises. Um, and, you know, it's a publicly funded team. This was a team in small, mid, middle of America, Wisconsin, uh, very blue collar. So they, uh, they needed public funding to get a football team to stick around in, in Green Bay, Wisconsin. And they've gone public four times throughout their 100 years um, just to bring in funds to the organization. Um, and that's where the, the term owner comes from. Really, you're just a shareholder. I, I personally have a share of the Green Bay Packers. So every year I get invited up to the shareholders meeting. I don't necessarily have a say in any of the personnel decisions like some people may believe, um, but I am technically an owner. So yeah, it's definitely a unique franchise. Um, no, one, no one else is like that, but I think that's part of the reason we've gotten to this crossroads right now because there's not that one owner that can open up his, his checkbook and get whatever free agent we need or retain whatever free agent's about to walk out the door or to make those decisions. It's kind of the president, the GM, uh, the head coach kind of, you know, collaborate on the decision process. And I think that's where egos step into play and uh, the communication just gets muffled. So I think that's really what ultimately has brought us to this point with the Aaron Rodgers saga. Yeah, yeah, and you mentioned not going to go get free agents, which has really been a huge gripe of his this last season. But two, you'd think if there's an owner there right now, like the guy that's the head of the snake, he'd step in right now and say, do whatever the hell Aaron Rodgers wants. You know, we got to keep our franchise quarterback in place. But, you know, it, with, without really that accountability at the head of it, I think you've kind of allowed, like you said, the, uh, the egos of the GM and, and, the, and the president to kind of run wild. And whereas the other 31 teams, I'm not necessarily sure that's how it would play out. Um, but uh, yeah, so the ownership situation's played into it. There's not really someone that can, you know, step down and really say, like, this is the guy we're rolling with. I don't care what the GM says. But another wrinkle to the saga that I think is really important, and I'm sure everyone remembers 2008, this is not the first time Rodgers has been involved in a controversial quarterback transition in Green Bay. You know, he took over from Brett Favre in 2008 after Brett Favre had retired, and then he did he wanted to come back, and then he went to the Jets and Vikings and one, I, I think him seeing that up close in person and being kind of in the Jordan Love spot right then where he is compared to now is probably played into how he, he knows that this is how they treat their quarterbacks a little bit. But can you kind of compare and contrast the two scenarios and say how Aaron being there 13 years ago and seeing this firsthand has really impacted how this controversy has played out? For sure. There's definitely a lot of similarities when it comes to this with Favre and Rogers, but there's also a lot of dissimilarities. Um, if, you know, Favre had retired and unretired, I think three times prior to the 2008 season. So he was kind of wishy-washy for the better half of five or six years about playing anymore. With Rogers, it's interesting because I, I want to say James Jones said it on NFL Network. It, it's more about it. I don't, I don't believe that it's solely the Jordan Love pick that pissed Rodgers off. Do I think it helped? Certainly not. But I think it's a culmination of the people that we let go as opposed to bringing in players. So I guess I think James Jones is the one that touched on this, but uh, letting Jordy Nelson walk, letting Clay Matthews walk, Julius Peppers, um, various linemen that Aaron has built this trust with that he doesn't really have any insight on the decision-making. And now I say 98% of the NFL players in the league shouldn't have a say because they're just the players that's up to the front office and the ownership. But when you have players like Rodgers and, and Favre even and Brady and Peyton Manning they should at least have their voice heard, in my opinion. 
these unicorn-like players, um, they shouldn't ultimately have a final say on building the team and spending what money where. But um, I think that's a big disconnect with Rodgers is they're just not listening to him. Or if they listen to him, they're, they're saying, all right, yeah, Aaron, we hear you. We're going to do what's best for you and then close the door and do whatever they're doing it anyway. Um, but, yeah, the Favre, Favre and Rodgers situation, it, it's similar, but it's not. Um, Rodgers was expected to be a, a lottery pick in the NFL draft, the number one overall pick. Uh, ended up sliding down to 24, still going in the first round, but uh, or 26, I should say. But um, Jordan Love, I don't even think it was projected a first-round pick. And Green Bay actually traded up in the first round to draft him. So there's there's definitely some differences when it comes to the to the successor uh, model because Aaron was a highly pro- prolific uh, college athlete. But um, yeah, it's just it's deja vu, but it's not. If that makes sense. Yeah, totally. It's it's not a perfect comparison, especially because. When you go back to 2005 when he's drafted, you know, like you said, he had the big draft day fall, but even still, he was a first round pick. And back then at that point, you know, if you're a first round quarterback, there wasn't necessarily as much public pressure to have you start within a year or two. You know, he famously sat for four years behind Favre and then came in, you know, in 2008. And I think that's why you're, you're exactly right. That situation was a little bit different. He'd been there. He'd been bidding his time, whatnot. Whereas the love thing, not only is he not really ready to play right now, but like they invested the, not only the first round pick, but like you said, trading up to get him. And then two, there's just kind of this onus of like, if you draft a quarterback in the first round, you have to play him, you know, like almost not necessarily the first season, but within the second or the third, they have to be out there. And I feel like that too has complicated the situation. And we didn't really prep this question, but I just want to hear your thoughts is, you know, what do you do with Jordan Love, no matter how this plays out? Because, you know, if, if say, say they sign Rodgers and they, and they smooth things over and everything, what do you do with that quarterback that you've used the first round pick on? Well, that's, that's the tough question, Andrew, because there's really not much tape on Jordan Love. You know, he didn't have a traditional preseason last year. I don't think he saw any snaps at all during the season. He didn't even suit up. He was the QB3. Uh, going back to his college days, I think he had a really good junior year and then senior year kind of not tanked, but, you know, his interceptions were almost matches touchdowns. So there's really not much tape on the guy and if he can even play NFL football. Um, the Packers have really shown their hand when they trade up to draft him on what their plans were with Aaron Rodgers. Um, you know, they expected him to retire or move on from him within the next two or three years. They draft Jordan Love and Aaron Rodgers wins the MVP one game away from the Super Bowl. So it really complicates their timetable on smooth transition into the next hopefully franchise quarterback, which I don't think three Hall of Fame quarterbacks have ever existed back to back to back. Um, So, yeah, I don't know what they do with Jordan Love. If they sign Rodgers to a four-year deal, I guess they have him play QB2 behind Rodgers in case of an injury. But at some point, they have to do something with either trading him because that's a first-round pick. That's a high-value pick. Um, Or sitting sitting him for five or six years. I don't think that's a realistic option, but I really don't have an answer to that. That's it's it's an interesting predicament. Yeah, no, and I think that's exactly why this this saga I think has really captured so much attention because it's not as simple as this guy's the the guy in the wrong, this guy's the guy in the wrong. It's it's a huge gray area. But regardless of that, no matter how this plays out, what the end result will be, the biggest losers in all of this, I think, is the Packers fan base because you're going to sit here one way or the other, either your relationships tarnished with your all-time great quarterback and if he does come back, there's probably still some hard feelings in the building or 
you're trading this iconic player and he's going to play for another team, which has always got to be tough to hear. But as a proud member of this fan base, which we've already talked about, who do you blame for this and, and why? And, it, you know, that may not be as simple as there's just one clear answer, but I'm, I'm interested to hear what you think. You know, as a diehard Packers fan and an Aaron Rodgers lookalike, it's hard to pick a side here. Um, I think that there's blame on both sides. Aaron, Aaron Rodgers certainly hasn't been the most uh, communicative with expressing his feelings and, and what he wants to do. He, you know, he sometimes he's very coy and uh, deliberate with not saying what he should say, if that makes sense. And the Packers for not, um, you know, showing the love to their Hall of Fame quarterback who's going to break so many records and, in my opinion, is one of the most talented quarterbacks, if not the most talented quarterback to ever play the game. Um, they haven't, you know, communicated with him effectively. They haven't shown them that they're shown him that they're invested in him for the long term. Uh, they don't help him out in the offseason. I think there was a statistic where nine out of the last 10 first round draft picks have been defensive. And the one sole offensive pick was Jordan Love. So, I mean, that that's just a slap in the face to a Hall of Fame quarterback who's given so much to the franchise, uh, literally carried this team on his back for the last decade. Um, so I think there's blame on both sides. If I had to pick one side, man, I think that there's a little bit more blame on the side of the organization than there is on Aaron. I can see why he's so frustrated. Yeah, and I, I mean – as a, as a, as a pan, as a fan who has no interest in the Packers other than hoping you guys just trade Roger, the Broncos, but I, I that's not going to happen, but just, yeah, if, if I'm, if I'm in your shoes, I'm looking at the front office going, how the hell do you let this happen? And I understand there's no way to know that the MVP season was going to come, but still, how are you just like one trading up for a quarterback and not telling him and two being so callous with how you treat this guy that's been the face of your organization for 15 years, but you know, we're running short on time for the segment. So I just want to like ask the question that I think kind of sums it all up, which is just, you know, as we already mentioned, this is such a convoluted situation. I don't think there's one seamless way for the situation to play out when everyone's going to be happy. Um, but just from your perspective, what do you think the ideal, the ideal ending for this drama is for both you as a Packers fan for Rogers as a player, and then for the Packers, as an organization. And I just want to ask, do you think your ideal situation is even achievable? So as a fan, as a diehard fan, as an owner of the Green Bay Packers, uh, my ideal situation would be to sign Rodgers to a lifetime contract. He plays for six or seven more years, wins just a couple more Super Bowls, and he, you know, rides off in the sunset with his fiance, Shanae Woodley in Hawaii. And, you know, they just live their Hawaiian adventure. Do I think that's going to happen? No, I have to be honest. I don't think it's going to happen. Realistically, what I have come to kind of accept is I think he's going to play out this year with us. I think we're going to trade him next March, April before the draft. Um, and we're going to invest in Jordan Love. Brian Gutekinds, our GM, who took over about three or four years ago for the late Ted Thompson, is so hell-bent on making Jordan Love his Aaron Rodgers because it's his draft pick. I, I, don't, I don't see a situation where – he admits he was wrong and he trades Jordan Love and we stick with Rodgers for the foreseeable future. I think that Aaron plays one, maybe two more years, and then we trade him, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, that that's that's the most realistic conclusion that I can foresee right now. Yeah, I, I agree. I think, you know, both sides are dug in and I think the Packers are just like, look, dude, we're open to trading you in the future. We've kind of messed this up ourselves, but this year, you got to play for us. We just can't throw Jordan Love out there. It'll be career suicide for that front office. But 
you know, it's just, it's, it's really convoluted. And I'm really interested to see if he does play this year in green Bay, what he's like. I mean, I'm sure he's going to be very professional and, and do his job, but I feel like we'll still see some cracks emerge where it's like, you know, he's clearly still unhappy. And, you know, I just don't really look at a situation where if the quarterback's unhappy with the team, the team is reaching its full potential, but we'll just have to see. And Hey, selfishly, I hope he goes to Denver, but I'm not here to drill that in if he does, but uh, we'll yeah, see, man. We'll see. <laughs> yeah. But you know, the, the closest thing to Aaron Rodgers, Billy Klein has spoken. Um, and I think we'll, we'll, we'll wrap a bow on that. But up next, we have this really great uh, subject about college basketball and the way it's changing. And I think you guys are really going to like it. All right. And welcome back to the second episode of the End of the Bench series. I'm Andrew Schuster. And as joined again by my good friend, Billy Klein, we just had a great discussion about, you know, the Packers situation and how it's it, like, it really is a controversy from multiple angles and um, you know, it's, it's not really a situation we can look at and say there's one easy solution for it. And which leads me right into our second subject, which is even more convoluted. And so bear with me for just a couple of minutes, because I need to get all this information out there just to give some context um, and just, you know, some insight into what we're about to talk about. So the subject of, of this second segment segment is college basketball and how there is so much changing right now that's going to drastically impact how the sport looks in even a year from now, but certainly in five, 10 years down the road. And I just kind of want to unpack it here with my good friend, Billy, because A, I'm a diehard Carolina fan. You guys all know that. But the coin flip side of that is Billy is a diehard Blue, or Duke Blue Devils fan. And, uh, you know, we've had some great discussions over the year. But I think kind of fans of two great college basketball fan bases, this isn't going to be a Duke-UNC argument or anything, but I think our perspective of rooting for two really big teams is going to be really insightful for this. Um, so but bear with me. So. This was an incredibly tumultuous year for sports in general, but in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic, no league arguably saw more long-term change than college basketball because you have name, image, and likeness rules, an expanded transfer portal, the uncertainty around one-and-dones, is there going to be a G League now where all the one-and-dones go to and instead of college basketball? Is the NBA just going to take kids straight out of high school? Nobody knows. And then most personal to the two of us, and I think is kind of an in a look at the future of college basketball is Roy Williams retiring. Coach K is about to have his farewell tour. And then other iconic coaches like Tom Izzo, Bayheim, Calipari, their, their days are numbered as well. And I think those combination of all those factors, the sport is going to change a whole lot in the next couple of years. And I really just kind of want to sit down and unpack it and see if we can kind of make sense of what's about to happen. So sorry for that, just verbal diary of information, but there's a lot to unpack here, like I said. So Billy, my first question here is, Simply put, are all of these simultaneously simultaneous developments a sign that this is truly the end of an era in college basketball? Or will these changes lead to some slight variations to how things operate? But otherwise, within a couple of years, we're just going to get used to the new normal and college basketball will continue to operate like, like business as usual. That's, that's an interesting question you bring up, Andrew. I, I think that, yeah, with the retirement of these longtime coaches, the Jim Bayheims, the Calipari, obviously Coach K, Roy Williams. I don't know that there's going to be another crop of these Hall of Fame quarterbacks that last 30, 20, 30 plus years, you know. Um, with the transfer portal and the one and dones, the name and likeness rules, yeah, I think that there's going to be a different kind of college basketball than we're used to. Um, I don't know. I think it's, I think it's going to be a, a new era for sure, obviously, but I'm not sure how it's going to change the overall uh, – 
aspect of college basketball, if it's going to change dramatically or if it's going to be kind of more or less, you know, this business as usual, like you said, in the next couple of years when the retirements kind of settle down and the, the rules kind of get put into place. Yeah, I know. I feel that. I, I feel like I just asked an impossible question. Tell me exactly how the sport will look like when all this insurmountable change is happening at the same time. No, it's just, um, I was curious to see what you thought, but so my next question is, and you kind of brought it up about the, the, the coaches and, and, and them leaving and establishing really dominant programs for 20, 30 years is, so we both agree that we, we love rooting for these teams that are constructed with, with four-year players where you just get really invested in them and you see them grow from, you know, freshmen to these seniors that like can take over the college basketball sport. And then on the vice versa, you're rooting for, you know, when I'm rooting for Duke or you rooting for UNC and I see Duke with the John Shire, the Nolan Smiths, the Greg Paulus's that have been there for years. I hate that team way more than I hate a team made up of Jason Tatum's Kyrie Irving's and Zion's. Cause frankly, they're just, there not very long, but so we both agree that we kind of prefer those teams where you get really invested in, in those players, but considering the transfer portal, it's going to allow for more roster turnover than, than ever before. You're going to see this NIL legislation incentivizing players to stay in school longer or potentially seek out other colleges much at a much more rapid pace and then the NBA potentially changing how one and dones are said. What do you think teams are going to be built like five years down the road? Is it, is it going to be all seniors and guys that have played together, you know, for multiple years, or is it going to be kind of a mix of one and dones, a mix of really talented players that are there two or three years, or I don't know, just what do you think a team, an average college basketball team is going to be built like five years from now? I think the one and done is on its way out. Thankfully, I think um, the next couple of years, they're going to loosen up the rules and allow players to either come out of high school, go straight to the G league, like you alluded to, or straight to the NBA if they're talented enough. Um, I think there still will be some one and done some two year players, but I think we will get back to more of the four year programs, which is part of the reason why I fell in love with, with Duke in the first place. And obviously UNC for yourself is having those four year seniors that you watch grow and develop. That's why you root for that program. That team is because you feel part of this team that you've watched grow. And I think with these rule changes coming into place, the one and done strategy is on its way out. If that's uh, that's a good way to summarize it. Yeah, no, I, I think too, like you said, I think that the G league and, and the NBA rule changes are going to at least get rid of those guys that are surefire coming out of high school, no matter what, what they do in college, they're going to be picked in the lottery. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's definitely going to be gone, which, you know, you could argue, oh, we're going to lose a lot of exciting players. But like we said, I, I think you enjoy those teams more where it's really good college players with some guys that have NBA potential that grow and develop together. Um, but then you'll still get maybe like, hey, there's a guy that could be a one and done if he really clicks in college, but then ultimately stays another two or three years. I think in my perspective, I think that's what you're going to be seeing a lot of, especially at the bigger college basketball programs. But the third question is, so last episode when I was on with our good friend Bradley Colbank, I went on a long diatribe saying how dubious I was that Duke basketball would continue with the same level of success once Coach K leaves the program since, for better or worse, he really has been the only coach to do it at Duke. But obviously, I'm extremely biased. I am not a fan of Duke, as everyone knows. So I'm curious to hear what you think about what's going to happen as Duke transitions from this iconic coach. Are they going to be business as usual, or are they going to have to kind of find an identity outside of this guy who's many people think is the greatest coach of all time. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, the last 20 years or so, we see these, these high level recruits come to Duke. Um, and they, you know, they claim they want to play for, they want with that, that Duke across their chest. They want that, that Duke blue. 
but if I'm being frank, that's because they want to play for Coach K. He's the best college basketball coach, objectively, in my opinion, of all time. Um, and I really thought that Jeff Capel, who's now coaching at Pittsburgh, was going to be the success, successor. Um, he left about two or three years ago to get that job. But having John Shire under Coach K's wing for these last seven or eight years, I think has been really good for the program. And it's not like uh, they're bringing in some former NBA coach or another college basketball coach. It's, it's you know, it's a former player, former national championship champion with the team. Um, and now a guy that sat on the bench with Coach K for the last, for the better part of a decade. I don't know that they're going to be as dominant right off the bat, but I think that it'll be interesting for both UNC and Duke um, recruiting these high school players to come play for them for this new era, this new generation of UNC and Duke and for that rivalry, because no matter who's coaching Duke and UNC, I don't think that rivalry is going anywhere. The games might not be as close as they've been the last 15, 20 years. We've been spoiled with some great classics, but I think that rivalry um, will forever remain intact regardless of who the coach is. So I think that'll be a huge uh, recruiting advantage for both UNC and Duke is enticing these players to come play for them and, you know, kick off the new generation of Duke and UNC. Absolutely. And yeah, I think, I think that's really the best way to put it. It's a new generation of something that will still be great. And like, yeah, we might have a couple of years where we're, we're kind of feeling our way into it and seeing, you know, what, what is a Carolina team under Hubert Davis look like? What does a John Shire Duke team look like? And just seeing if, if they can really kind of replicate the same level of heated battles that we've kind of grown accustomed to see the last 40 years when coach K was there with Dean Smith and then Bill Guthridge and then Roy Williams. And so it'll just be, I feel like we said it a couple of times, but there's really no way of knowing how it's going to look like until we know it. And then once we see it, we'll know it. But uh, you kind of touched on it earlier. You're not quite sure if we're going to see the next crop of like these dominant coaches that just are at the same programs consistently, you know, in the final four conversation for 20 or 30 years at a time. But do you think there's any chance we could see guys like Tony Bennett, Jay Wright, Mark Few doing that? Or are we really just, as we've kind of said, headed towards a sport where it's just, you know, on any given year, a Baylor can come out of nowhere and just dominate the sport, but then two years later, not necessarily be a contending team. And there's just, there's just more parity um, across the sport. Sure. Yeah. I think, I mean, you named guys like Tony Bennett, Jay Wright, um, Mark Few. I think those are some really good coaches and they've already established themselves as really good coaches. And that's part of the reason why they've had success. I just don't think that we're going to see the records broken, the, the 30 plus year, 10 years anymore. Um, that just doesn't seem like it's sustainable. So I think that, yeah, I think you're right. I think every year kind of will be, it's up in the air. You know, it's, it's, it, that, that's, that's the beauty of the tournament, right? Is it's up in the air, but we always have these super teams, these, these top heavy recruited teams. But I think with that kind of dissipating that, every year you'll see smaller teams like Wichita State or Loyola, Chicago, Baylor um, make runs. And I think that's honestly better for the sport than, than anything has been the last 10, 15 years. Yeah, I think you're definitely right. I think it's impossible to say, oh, I expect another John Wooden run or another Coach K run or, you know, these iconic Mount Rushmore coaches. But I think you're right. Somewhere in the middle of like, you know, Mark Few will get his, even though Gonzaga hasn't been able to win it yet. Tony Bennett won one, even though I still am really dubious about Virginia as a tournament team every year. And I mean, Jay Wright, I think if there's anyone who could do it. It's him who's already won two national titles at Villanova and seems to be churning out NBA players every single year. But, you know, uh, I hopefully this wasn't a, a, a whole, you know, this wasn't too hard to listen to with us just kind of spewing a lot of information to you. But, you know, I think what makes college basketball different than the NBA is kind of how you become way more invested in your teams because, you have a personal connection to them. It's not just, oh, I'm from 
Los Angeles. So I like the Lakers. It's like you're an alumni of the school or you have a personal connection to the school. And that makes it much more easy to kind of really become invested in. And we, as we said, with the four-year players, that's what really makes college basketball so special. So we just got to have to see how it plays out. And hopefully I'm having Billy on in five years. And we're talking about how college basketball now is the greatest sport in uh, all of college. Basketball. But we'll just have to see. But uh, yeah, so I think that we'll, we'll tie a bow on that for our college basketball discussion. And, you know, I'm going to end it with a, you know, go to hell Duke because it's my podcast and I can, but coming up next, we'll have a couple of soapboxes and dudes and duds of the week for you guys to enjoy. Thanks. Stay classy, Carolina. All right. Welcome back to our last segment of the end of the bench series, episode two with my good friend, Billy Klein. We've had some great discussion about Aaron Rodgers and what's going the hell on in green Bay, some breakdown of college basketball and, you know, what we're going to see or not see five years down the road with this rapidly changing sport. But now I want to end it off because this week, unfortunately, we're not doing a more regular episode with Ryan. Um, so we're going to both, Billy and I, do some soapbox moments and, you know, say our dudes and does of the week and then get out of here. So first off, we're going to do with my soapbox. And it's a little bit of a continuation of what we talked about last week, which was how dominant Shohei atani has been for baseball this season, which is insane to think about that something exciting is going on in that sport right now because that sport just as we've beaten to death on this show is just kind of at a crossroads with not really being sure how to, you know, progress to the modern era, but that's neither here nor there. But what I want to talk about is how this upcoming Monday, Shohei Otani is going to be in the home run derby at Coors field. And it is going to be, I think it's going to be legendary because not only is he got 32 home runs right now, which broke the all time Japanese hitter record, for home runs in a season, and we're not even at the all-star break. Hideki Matsui, great hitter with the Yankees back in the 90s and, and early 2000s. He already broke his home run record, and we're only halfway through the season. So you take this guy who's just hitting monster dinger after dinger and putting him in the most hitter-friendly ballpark in America, and I think we're really going to be set up to see like a Josh Hamilton at old Yankee Stadium performance where it's just 450-foot bomb after 450-foot bomb coming off the bat is sounding different than anything you've ever heard. And then add in the fact that he'll be pitching in the all-star game the next day. It's just unbelievable. I don't think enough people in the sports world know that this incredible thing is going on. It's like if Tom Brady was like, I'm also going to go play middle linebacker for the Buccaneers this year and had like 115 tackles. It's just, it's pure insanity. And I can, I can't believe I'm saying this. I cannot wait to watch this baseball event on, on Monday. And honestly, I'm going to say it too. This is probably the only time this season I'm going to give a positive mention of the Rockies organization in any way. So yeah, you're welcome Rockies, but everyone tune in for Shoei Atani next week, because I know I will. Billy, what do you want to talk about this week? Yeah, man. I mean, I'm looking for the home run derby as well. I mean, as a kid growing up watching Bobby Abreu, Josh Hamilton, the home run derby was the highlight of the MLB season. So hopefully Atani can bring back some of the buzz back to baseball. My soapbox of the week is one time for the little guys. This year's NBA Finals features two smaller market teams. I'm all for it. It's the Phoenix Suns and the Milwaukee Bucks battling it out for the association's ultimate prize. Uh, Phoenix has a 1-0 series lead, and game two is set for tonight. We're scheduling it. We're recording this on the 8th of July. But Devin Booker continues to emerge himself as an elite player in this league uh, with each game that passes. Giannis Optikatumbo, uh, correct me on the pronunciation, uh, finally Broke this conference barrier to make it to the championship. Uh, with that bum knee, though, does he have enough left in the tank to bring Milwaukee its first title since 1971? It's a nice change of pace to see hard work and rebuilds work out as opposed to the super team model we've grown so accustomed to. 
And hopefully this year's finals matchup is just the tip of the iceberg. And we'll continue to see smaller market teams make it to the championship and less and less of these super team dynasties. I mean, going back to the 90s with the Bulls into the early 2000s, you had the Lakers and the Spurs and then the Lakers again and then the Heat and Golden State, now Brooklyn. It's nice to see some smaller market teams finally break through and, uh, you know, show it to the bigger guys every now and then. Yeah, I mean, I'm all for that. As everyone on this podcast knows, I'm a little subtle about my my preference for the Denver Nuggets. So hopefully your prediction's right. And, you know, the Nuggets get a title in there somewhere when uh, Jamal's knee is no longer, you know, torn up. And, and hey, maybe the Hornets, against all odds, with LaMelo Ball can be. Yeah, not, not, not sure if I'm predicting the Nuggets to win. I didn't say those words, but, uh, hey, LaMelo Ball and those Hornets, just watch out in a couple of years now. Okay, okay. All right, well, let's move into duds and, and, and uh, dudes of the week. So my dud was uh, second week in a row, just something you see on TV that you should just never be seeing. Last week, it was the lady at the Tour de France whacking actual Tour de France cyclists with a cardboard sign and then getting arrested. This week, it's, it's, it's LA Clippers owner Steve Ballmer. And so this happened last week, but it was so egregious and creepy that, again, I, I had to mention it. But for those that don't know what I'm referring to, there's a clip from game six of the Clippers Sun series where Steve Ballmer is wildly celebrating after a Clippers run where they, they had, you know, cut the lead to 10 points or something. And, you know, he's known for doing this, but, but at this time, rather than like just gesticulating like a madman and being all red in the face and just being a crazy man, he inexplicably starts grabbing and slapping the thighs of the two people sitting next to him. Now, supposedly they work for him, but I don't know that that makes it any better that he knows them and that they're his employees, but it's just, it's the fucking weirdest thing I've ever seen happen in an NBA game. Like, I mean that. Like, he's just standing there, this man worth like $80 billion, just grabbing and thrusting with his entire body and just grabbing the thighs of the people next to him. And, you know, I know he's known for being goofy and, and everything, but to do that for like 20 and 30 seconds, it was just really unsettling and makes me wonder how often he does, he does that on a regular basis because the people did not look happy that he was doing it, but they also did not look surprised. So, Go check a clip of it out if you must, but do so at your own peril because it's definitely not safe for work and you will probably have nightmares or emotional trauma as a result. So just, just be careful because I know I have those as well. But Billy, what's your dud of the week? Yeah, Bomber's really giving off some uh, Jerry Richardson vibes there. I'm not a fan of that. Um, my dud of the week is Aaron Rodgers. I'll be the first to admit I'm one of the biggest Aaron Rodgers stands out there. I even get told on a weekly basis I bear a striking resemblance to the guy. I constantly defend the man, whether it be the decisions he makes or the things he says or doesn't say. And I honestly too do believe that he's one of the most misunderstood and misinterpreted athletes today. But one thing that I just can't bring myself to accept is this dude's hairstyle. I don't know if it's a midlife crisis or what, but it's just not working for me, man. I think he's trying to recapture some of his youth with this so-called flow but the man looked creepy as hell on Capital One's the match this week. He played a hell of a round of golf. I mean, him and DeChambeau looked great out there, more so Aaron than DeChambeau. Um, what's even worse is the longer he continues to grow his hair out, the more and more I'm afraid that he's embracing his new life in Denver. Woo! I'm not predicting the man's next career move solely based on a hairstyle, but as a Colorado and yourself and a guy with some serious lettuce locks, I know you're optimistically hoping that this new hairstyle is just the beginning of Mr. Rogers packing up and moving to a new neighborhood. Aaron, I'm speaking to you directly here. If for some reason you're listening to this podcast, <laughs> as a diehard Green Bay Packers fan, a stakeholder, owner of the team, and your doppelganger, I am begging you to please cut that damn hair, flip on some Creed, 
and show up to training camp ready to play once again for the greatest franchise in the NFL. I mean, fair enough, but I got to say, it sounds to me like his hair is, should be my dude of the week. If it's a poor, if it's, you know, telling the future that he's going to be a Bronco one day, but you know, I, I agree. It may not be his best look, but Hey, if, if he's, he's wanting to fit in with the Boulder culture, I say, let him do it. But uh, so speaking of my Broncos, my dude of the week is a, uh, I don't know because my dude of the week is whoever is going to be the next owner of the Denver Broncos, because despite this being a slow period for the NFL, obviously July is the dead period of all dead periods. There was some big news last week when a long awaited court case that's been hanging over the franchise for about five or six years now was called off between a trust that the Broncos former owner, Pat Bowen, who's led the team since the late or the early eighties and led them to all the Super Bowls, is basically considered one of the greatest owners in, in all of the NFL when he was around a legal trust that he established to run the team was sued by children of his that felt that felt when he made the trust, he was not acting under, you know, total sanity because he was dealing with Alzheimer's and these things and basically was, was saying he wasn't in the right state of mind when he made this trust. And it's been this back and forth legal battle that's kind of overshadowed the team and has honestly been a huge reason why the Broncos have not been their usual selves the last five years because there's not really a clear cut owner running the team, even if there is technically an owner on paper. Um, but so the court case was called off this week, signaling to just about anybody with a brain that the Bullens are finally just going to negotiate a new sale of the team and get away from the organization, which I'm really sad to see this, this family go because they did oversee a team that saw more Super Bowl appearances than losing seasons when Pat Bowen was, was in charge. That's not a made-up stat, straight up. I think he had six losing seasons, and they had seven Super Bowl appearances in his 32 years running the team. Just incredible. But I'm also aware that him and him, like him not really having a predecessor, this vacuum at the top has led to the Broncos kind of falling by the wayside. And so I'm just really looking forward to someone else stepping in, whether it's Peyton Manning, which has been thrown on the table, or unfortunately the guy that I really think has the best chance of doing it, which is Jeff Bezos um, stepping in and, you know, maybe making a, the, uh, the Denver Amazons or whatever he wants to change to the team, uh, a really winning franchise again. So like I said, I don't really know who my dude of the week is yet, but it's whoever the new owner of the Denver Broncos will be. Billy, who you're due to the week. Jeff Bezos to the moon. All right, my dude of the mo- my dude of the week is Joey Chestnut once again breaking his own hot dog record. So another Fourth of July has come and gone, and as is tradition with the Independence Day for the last fifteen years or so, American hero Joey Chestnut absolutely wiped the floor with the competition. Chestnut has been in a league of his own when it comes to Nathan's hot dog eating contest. He's won fourteen out of the last fifteen years. Simply put, the dude just knows how to scarf down some wieners. Growing up, I never thought anyone could outween Takira Kobayashi until the dude known as Chestnut made his presence known. Joey won this year's contest with a record-breaking 76 hot dogs in 10 minutes. The dude averaged eight dogs a minute. I mean, come on. Those are some serious hot dog scarfing abilities. The runner-up was only able to put down 50 dogs, losing to Chestnut by 26 hot dogs. I don't see an end in sight for Joey Chestnut's reign, and he could very well go on for another 20 years at this pace. And I'll leave the listeners with this. There are no losers when eating hot dogs only wieners oh dude. yeah we had a bad joke on last last week's end of the bench now we have this one but yeah hey, i think i think this is a little bit this was a little bit better than last week's but you know, yeah I'll, I'll rest my case that remains to be seen but i i agree with you joey chestnut american hero and this has some really uh personal significance to us because one of our we're in a fantasy football league and our punishment this year for the loser 
was as he had to eat as many hot dogs as Joey Chestnut ate in a single hot dog eating contest. He had to eat that many in a week. So he ate 75 last year. Billy, do we need to up the punishment to 76 hot dogs in a week? I don't see any harm in adding one more hot dog to that 75 total. So, yeah, bump it up to 76. Austin Ramsey, that's for you. Austin Ramsey, 76 hot dogs coming your way. But, hey, we're going to put a bow on this, wrap it up for this week. I hope you guys like the second episode of End of the Bench. want to give a big shout-out to my good friend Billy Klein, like we said multiple times, basically Aaron Rodgers 2.0. Hell, maybe he can suit it for the Packers this year and do better than Jordan Love. But, Billy, thanks again. Hope you had fun. And, you know, for everyone here at the Walk-Ons Podcast, signing off July 8th, End of the Bench, Episode 2 is in the books. The Walk-Ons.